Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with that no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, you know that the answer is always yes. I'm your host, Clementine Ford, author of the books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, and currently writing the forthcoming memoir, How We Love. My guest this week is a multi-award winning, multi-genre writer for film, television, stage and print, and a former multi-award winning comedy performer. She gained her master's in screenwriting at just 21 from the Australian Film, Television and Radio School after winning the inaugural Sony Columbia TriStar Scholarship for Television Writers. She was also the recipient of the Gilbert and Tobin Award for Outstanding Body of Work and the New South Wales Film and Television Office Scriptwriting Award. She's toured comedy shows in North America and is currently in pre-production for her feature-length film debut. She is... Lou Sands. Hi, thanks for having me on. Wow, that is an old CV. <laughs> well, I went to your website to find it. I really need to update that. I hate that. That's that's always one of the worst things when you're doing a live event or something and you know someone's like reading out what is clearly an old resume because you haven't bothered to tell your manager that this is the new updated one. I think one. my manager's got my updated one. I was just waiting for you to reveal my VCE score <laughs> and actually take out the CV that I took to get my job at McDonald's at 14. How the bloody hell are you, Lucy? I'm good. I'm good. I'm out of the house, which as you know, being a friend of mine is quite a hard thing to get me to do. It is, yes. Well, in fact, not just a friend, former housemate. Yes, we did just live together, yeah, before they streamed stuff like that. Yes, also before we could take to social media and document our life together. Yeah, we couldn't. We did meet on social media. We did. We did, but back in the days when it was analogue. Isn't it terrible that that was, what, like 10 years ago and it already feels like ancient history? Yeah, because back I Back in the pre-days. That's it. But Twitter was different then. It was. You used it to make friends and say nice things to people and now it was you a just very use it supportive. to give people like chronic mental health issues. Yeah, yeah. So naturally I'm not on it as much as I used to be when we first met. Well, I stopped using it completely. 
Oh, yeah, which has been one of the best things about 2020 for me. I use it to read the news sometimes, but more importantly, to troll my husband. <laughs> well, what else is it for? You know, these are these are two two perfectly acceptable things to do. That's it. So, and then I do it, and then I get off it for like six months, and then he posts something, and then I troll him again. It's actually really just foreplay, if I'm honest. So, well, we can get more into that <laughs> shortly. But how about before we uh, get to the question answering segment mm. of this podcast, how about we have a little bit of a chat about your career? Oh. I mean, we'll talk about other things as well, but one of the things that is so impressive about you, one of the many things that is so impressive about you is that you've been working in the film and television industry for 20 years and you are only just 40. Yes, and now emerging properly. It's you are the, unfurling like I'm a... Unt- you are coming out of your chrysalis. I am. I'm gushing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really transparent about that, actually. I wasn't saying, oh, it's taken a lot. That wasn't my... No, no, uh, but I think it's important to talk about yeah, that. I don't and to give people we, some, you know, a path. Yes, I don't think we do talk about it. I think we're very into overnight successes and kind of people getting stuff up really fast and everything like that, and I don't think we take into account that for some people it can be quite a long road until mm. you find where your voice sits. The other thing as well, which is interesting about what you've said, is that to the outside observer, it often appears to be like an overnight success thing. It does. You know, that people will be like, well, where the fuck has she come from? Yeah, yeah. They don't see the years and years of work and sweat and toil. No, and I'm probably like, I probably served you coffee. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, while simultaneously getting an award for something at exactly the same time. It's a head fuck. I started very young. And I started at a time where that wasn't a commodity. Doors just shut on you straight away. I was also interested in writing about women. Mm-hmm. And Gross. There was no audience who for cares, that. Who cares about that? <laughs> in 2003, they no one wants definitely to see that. did not give any shits about it. Sorry, I do swear a lot. So if there are children listening, oh, you're, you're take definitely note. on the right podcast. Don't worry. Um, just, yeah, be aware of my pronunciation. It's always correct. And um, yeah, and then on top of that, I was interested in funny women. And then on top of that, I was interested in unlikable women, aka relatable people. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, I would have doors shut in my face constantly, but I never took the hint. (laughs) And so what's really funny is that 20 years later, some of those stories I'm using Mm. now, now they've got a place, now they've got a voice. I'm interested in different aspects of them. So like the film that um, we're making next year, we did a reading of it and one of the actors said to me, we did a reading I think earlier this year. Was it earlier this year or last year? You came along. Uh, it was pre-corona, but it was at the start of start the year. Start of the year, February, yeah. I think. One of the actors in it said to me, oh, you know, how long did this take to get up? And and I paused and I thought, well, do I tell him the soundbite of, you mm. know, oh, two, three years? Or do I tell him the truth that this was an idea that was formed 16 years ago? Mm. And I said 16 years and he just was floored. And I was like, yeah, you know, for some people that's what it is. I like to talk about that because for me it allows other artists to know that it's not a straight line. I like to say that I chose the path of most resistance. (laughs) (laughs) Just like you, Lou. Just like me where I was like, yeah, I'll go in. Like one of my first gigs was working on life support back in the early 2000s and that was such a cool, interesting show and I was like, oh, yeah, we're really doing kind of like dark comedy and and stuff like that and um, that kind of ended and that was kind of it. 
you know, there wasn't any kind of progression. There was nowhere to go from that. And I was not uh, not going to be a television writer as such. Mm. Um, I got enough rejection letters to tell me that. So I took that hint quite firmly. But I was interested in film and interested in, yeah, like I said, uh, problematic women mm. would probably be where my niche is and it's an area now where I'm allowed to play so that's been amazing that I'm afforded that but it's taken a while. Well because people are also finally interested in the complexities of women (sighs) on screen maybe not in real life but certainly on screen. Oh I think absolutely but also you know we've got more platforms so we've got people can curate their viewership more you know like when I'm talking about going back and pitching 15 16 years ago you only had certain networks that you could go to. That show that you're pitching would have to appeal to all of the viewers. It would also have mm. to appeal to advertisers. And so, and there weren't web series then. Like I did do a web series, but I don't think the internet existed yet. And so I think that what came of that is that you were just like, oh, okay. But in my mind, I was just like, okay, well, but the world changes. And that's what happened. The world changes and suddenly and politics and social movements happen and stuff like that. And therefore that also does actually allow artists to start accessing the avenues that they otherwise were shut down to them Mm. previously. But what was also good was that I had years of experience and a lot of resilience so that when that door kind of started to open, and mind you, it's still just held open by a paint tin that could collapse at any moment now. That's the endless conundrum (laughs) of the freelancing artist. That's it. So it's that thing of, um, yeah, so the door's been kicked open you know, slightly, but I'm also surrounded by people that are supporting me now, Mm. you know, and that believe in me. And that's really cool as well. Like it helps you so much when other people believe in you as well. Mm. And it does only take like one person to recognise that, Mm. especially in this industry. And then they start introducing you to people and they start saying, oh, this is happening and then we're going to give you that funding and that funding and that, you know, and you start to go, oh, hang on, this is actually happening. And you're kind of in it and in the thick of it. How do you deal with the imposter syndrome of that? (laughs) I ask because obviously, well, I feel imposter syndrome as well. And imposter syndrome is pretty common to so many artists and particularly women, I think, feel imposter syndrome. And you've been working towards this for so long. How does one deal with suddenly seeing the light on the horizon? Oh, it's really hard because it's the muscle that we practice the least, isn't it? I said this to someone the other day. Self-belief. And also rejection. You get so Mm. used to rejection and things not working out that, like, I am match fit in that department. So much so that when I see other people get rejected from stuff and they get upset, sometimes I'm like, ah, you know, just get Mm. on with it. But they they don't have my history behind them. So Mm. just to interrupt very quickly... This also calls back to what we were saying before, that people don't often, they see the success, they don't see the years and years of rejection. Because I have a similar view as well, that if people are dealing with, I mean, obviously, like, we're all entitled to our feelings about things, but I've always felt very frustrated by people who who allow one rejection to stop them from continuing to try because I feel like when you, and look, there is a lot of privilege in that statement because, you know, there's a whole range of different factors that might influence you not wanting to continue trying. But I always feel like if you have privileges, which a lot of people who do give up do have privileges, I think like if you can't get over it, figure out a way to get around it or. Or it's just not the industry for you. Like to be fair, like I think that's something that there's a lot of resilience that you have to build up as a Mm. freelance artist. And 
And I've seen a lot of people drop off over the years, but that's not because they don't have resilience necessarily. That's because of a whole bunch of factors, and you know, always almost primarily financial and then just lack of opportunity and stuff like that. So it's got nothing to do with their talent and what they can bring mm. to the table, sadly. So we do lose a lot of amazing artists because it's such a hard road. And I don't think we should forget that because there's a bunch of ideas out there and work and music and all these things that have never been created by mm. some of the most talented people and we've never heard it, you know. And, yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of shit out there that that we do. Created <laughs> there's because... a lot of people that don't suffer from imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, I have anxiety. I have diagnosed anxiety and it is almost specifically to do with my work, mm. weirdly enough. I'm quite zen in, other, in nearly every other aspect of my life, um, but when it comes to my work I do get very anxious and it did kind of stop me from, like, I stopped doing stand-up. I stopped doing things like that. I stopped talking in public. This is probably the first time I've spoken on something in a very, very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And I did text you saying I'm feeling really anxious about this. And I think that's all wrapped up in my imposter syndrome because I'm like, well, why am I here? Why am I speaking? What could I possibly have to bring to the table? And I still have that and it's a process that I have to go through and I have really vivid dreams about <laughs> failing almost in like a curb your enthusiasm manner and then I tell my partner about them and then he's just like, stop dreaming. <laughs> you know? Like it's a struggle. I, I'm not sure it will go away but when somebody hires me for something or they give me something, they are expecting a degree of confidence and this idea that I can run it or do it or accomplish it. So I have to bring that to the table. So I've become very good at faking what's needed for me to be able to walk in that room and and tell people that I can do what they're asking me to do Mm -hmm. and show them the vision for that and then in turn they have confidence in the project. Mm. But it's practice. I was just going to say that, that like so many things, it is a practice and it's not just practice, it is a practice. Yeah. I feel like this is something that we don't acknowledge enough of. I get a lot of different questions about different points of advice. How do I do this in my life? How do I do this in work? How do I speak up against sexism, et cetera, et cetera. And I always feel like with no, of course, this is completely understandable. People ask those questions wanting to have a simple three-step process answer. Do this and this will happen. Do this and your workplace will be great. Do this and your partner will respect you or whatever it is. But it's actually not ever as simple as that. Everything is a practice and you don't walk out your house one day and go, oh, okay, cool. I figured out the trick. Yeah. Oh my God. I'd make, we'd make so much money, but that said, there's a lot of memes and stuff and, and people that, that say, this is how you do it. Mm. And people sign up for that. And it might work for one person, but it doesn't work for 900 other people. Mm. I think you've got to find your own way to do it. But I also think having the conversation about the fact that, you know, I've always worked other jobs mm. and I'm really transparent about that as well. Now, you know, I get paid to write content for websites and stuff like that as well. And that's what I do in between working in TV and working in film. Um, I've worked in offices. I've worked in catering. I've Mm. worked in, and at times where people would think, you know, that I was doing pretty okay for myself, but I'm like, no, no, I've still got to go off and do this or I've got to, you know, serve coffee or wash dishes or do something like that or get up at six in the morning and go and open up an office for someone. I'm very, I think that's really important that people know that Mm. I've always had, I've had to pay my bills and I've, that, that's always been a big thing. Like I've got to pay the bills, I've got to pay the rent. So that's always in the forefront of my mind. I think about that too, that particularly in terms of that kind of 
overnight success thing. Not that I'm saying like I was an overnight success or anything like that, but of course, you know, as we're delving into imposter syndrome, and it's very difficult to talk about your success, particularly in Australia, because we deride people who acknowledge that they may have success or that they may have at least partially worked for it. At the point that I'm at in my career now, I've been working towards that for 15 years. Yeah. But for half, at least half of that time, I was working in hospitality. I was working as a temp. I was doing anything, as you said, that could pay the bills. And I feel like I've never been too proud to do any job or I've never thought if I have to do this other job that's not related to my industry, then somehow it means that I'm not I'm succeeding less, in yes, my industry. I'm less than an artist in that. And it did it did give rise to an idea that I had about the fact that I think also that I think we should always not measure ourselves against other people. Mm-hmm. If you don't have issues with, with money, accommodation, food, mental health, things like that, then there's the rise to success actually can often be a little bit smoother because you don't have those obstacles. So you can spend hours a day on your artistic practice. You can mm. go away for three months to an island somewhere that some uncle owns that that you can um, work on your screenplay and do all that kind of stuff. And, and time, money affords you time. Mm. Housing security affords you time. Th- these are things that afford you time. And Having a partner. Yep, that can support affords you, you, affords you time, you yep. know if that partner is able to do that for you. And so if you start to add up that and compare it, maybe you're seven years behind. Do you Mm. know what I mean? Like maybe you're three years behind. So you're actually on track with your career, but it might just happen six years after that person that you measure your success by because you've had these other issues come up or you've had more obstacles in your way. And that's not fair, but... No, it's not fair, but I think that when you start reality. thinking about it in that way, then you might not be as hard on yourself anymore yeah. because we are always comparing ourselves to other people and we are, whether or not we admit it or not, are comparing our success to other people's success. And when you kind of go actually take stock and go, actually, I've done a lot, mm. done a lot with all of that going on, <laughs> you know, mm. and um, this is actually probably the right time to be making work. I'm actually really excited that I'm in my 40s now and get to write for my generation and voices of my generation and stories that I'm interested in. Um, like going back to the the film project, when I first started working on that, I was really interested in the daughters in the project. And so that was the focus of kind of earlier drafts and storylines. And then I had a kid and I'm older and now the focus of the film is the mum. Mm. So also art um, comes with us over time. We pull it out of that drawer and you look at it and you go, I still think there's a story to tell there, but what's the story now? What story am I interested in telling? And so that project was able to kind of take on another life because my interest shifted and I wanted to tell stories for, I suppose we're called older women now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's a daily thing. I'm still still dealing with it and I'll still be dealing with it, I think. I think it's also helpful to remember that almost everyone feels this way. If you walk into a room and you do have that imposter syndrome and you feel like at any moment someone here is going to figure out that I'm not meant to be in this room, it's helpful to remind yourself that there are other people in the room, even some of the ones who you might look at who you think, well, they're fucking successful. They've got it all together. And they're probably thinking some version of the same thing as well. Maybe not to the same degree as you, maybe not with the same force, but they will be thinking on some level, 
Jesus, isn't it crazy that I've managed to fool people for the yeah, last years? Yeah, that's why I think we should bring in a sticker system. <laughs> like, you know, could you imagine just walking to a party and everyone's got like the little their little sticker on that says, I've got imposter syndrome today, um, you know, and you could have another one that says it could be premenstrual related, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, and then you could kind of say, you're, I have been at some part. I got invited to this party with my partner a couple of years ago now. And um, it was called a soiree. Right. And this particular artist holds them twice a year or something and invites artists from around Melbourne. And we walked in and we were just like, what are we doing here? Has she invited us to be the staff? Like we (laughs) honestly were just like going, this is just. We're the flavour. I just had no idea what was going on, you know, and you're just like, I just have no idea. And that's when an artist that I used to life model for spotted me in the kitchen and yelled out across the room, you used to pose naked for me out the back of the ESPY. I'll have a glass of wine, please. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, good God, yes, I did. So, yeah, I still had imposter syndrome even then and that, that gave me clout. Mm. I was listening to an episode of Louis Theroux's Grounded podcast the other day. That he's been doing the series throughout lockdown and this particular episode was with Helena Bonham Carter and she, even she was talking about in the early years of her career, it wasn't necessarily so much imposter syndrome. I mean, of course she grew up incredibly wealthy and very privileged, even though her family had particular challenges. Her father was very sick when she was 12. He was in hospital for a long time and then ended up acquiring a disability. So it wasn't all like entirely smooth sailing for her, but she also went to one of the most expensive schools in Britain and, you know, was being cast in Merchant Ivory productions when she was 18, 19. But she talked about being, feeling like she was a really late developer in terms of like establishing herself as an adult with adult thinking. And, you know, this is why when she went to LA to work there briefly, I think she's only done two projects there. She faced criticism in her career for draping herself in clothes that, you know, as one reviewer called it, made her incredibly sexless and unfeminine. And she said, I think I wanted to be like that because I was quite uncertain of myself in lots of ways. And you would look at Eleanor Bonham Carter now, you know, this incredibly formidable woman in her 50s who obviously has grown a lot through her adult life and make the mistake of thinking, well, she always was that way. She was always that confident. Fully and that, formed. Yeah. I think that's this idea that we've got is that everyone is fully formed, especially now. I think that there's this idea that you're meant to be completely who you mm. are with no error mm. or no transformative past or anything like that at all or, or insecurities. You're just meant to be you 110%. And pop culture demands that of yeah. women even when they're not women yet, they're Girls, like I was uh, watching the Vanity Fair. Every year Vanity Fair goes and interviews Billie Eilish. and Well, every year. I mean, they've been doing it since 2016. Because they couldn't have been doing it that long because she's not that old. No, so it's the fourth <laughs> It's the fourth year running and they started doing it when she was 16 or 14, I think, sorry, because she's just 18 now. And it is quite an interesting kind of time capsule of this girl, this young girl who's also happens to be one of the most famous people in the world reflecting on her goals and her dreams and her ambitions. And this most recent one that she did where she's now 18, she talks really succinctly and really uh, with obviously with the rapid maturity and development that comes from that and that comes from that exposure. She talks about how 
she is trying on different looks because, and she says, because I'm a teenage girl, I'm 18 and that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be trying to figure out who I am. And I just thought that is so amazing really that you at 18 are able to articulate that in a way that I feel like I got to my thirties and I didn't know that I was trying on different Oh, I still, I'm still trying on different personality, at least different clothes. (laughs) You know, I'm still trying to find my look. I was in the elevator on the way up here with Clem going, I think I'm going to get into bright coloured suits, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, it's just, but then I'm like, maybe I can afford to buy a bright coloured suit now. Um, But I think also what we don't factor in is, and maybe Helen Moncada kind of talks to this a bit, is that rejection even as a child, Mm. you know, not looking the right way, Mm -hmm. not being the right way, being a bit outspoken. When I was at high school, I was called a feminist because I think that they got the word confused with bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a real slur and and that. And so I kind of knew that I was always a little bit on the outside and then that kind of just became part of my personality. But I was very much into observing people and understanding that people are much more kind of complex than we give them credit for. My husband hates it. Like someone will cut us off in traffic and he'll be like, oh, you know, and I'll be like, you have no idea what their day's been like. <laughs> and he'll be like, oh my God. Like sometimes people can just be a dick. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes people can just be a dick, but sometimes we've just got to imagine mm. that they've had a bad day. Probably nine times out of 10, they're just being a dick though. Mm. But I think that thing of, so I became very kind of empathetic and stuff right down to the point that I was told that that was a problem. My mum and dad were told that that was a problem when I was at school. She just feels too much for people. I was told she feels too much for people. I really was a rebel without a cause, you know. (laughs) I've learnt to kind of, I put protections up in place now about that sort of stuff as well and I'm not as much a rebel without a cause anymore. Like I do have my causes and things that I'm interested in but it's, it's still changing. Like mm-hmm. that's the thing. I, I still feel quite young and I'm not just saying that because I'm really hip and have nice skin. Actually, that's something to shout out. If you have acne as a teenager, you won't age as much. <laughs> All that oil. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's drenched you it's in drenched Mediterranean me. longevity. That's exactly it. That's it. Well, what I'm interpreting from what you're saying and what I agree with as well is that or what I would like to offer is that trying on different personalities when you're an adolescent is quite traumatic because you don't know, you have no idea what the base canvas is, basically. What I feel now as a 39-year-old who is still, as you said, trying on different looks and trying on different personalities is that I feel a lot more power over what those explorations are. Well, you can now, I think, because yeah. you're not kind they're of aunts. They're more fun. And that, but I think until if, you, if you're never kind of hitting that base as a teenager, mm. if you're never kind of like the skinny kid or the popular kid or those kind of things, which are kind of a measure that carries you through life. So you're always trying to find that, that look or that outfit or mm. that, that hairstyle or whatever it is that's going to, you're going to see yourself reflected back and go, oh, yeah, Mm. this is me. But, like, I think I was getting onto the thing about being, like, feeling younger was that it's always a good thing. Like when I go to pick my son up from daycare and that the parents there seem, like, really adult. Yes. (laughs) You know, they're talking about mortgages and they're talking about their other car and play dates and birthday parties where they design the the decorations themselves. Um, someone was telling me about baking a cake this morning and they were like, what did you do for your son's birthday? And I'm like, he picked the cake he wanted on the internet out. <laughs> you know, like, that's like another identity now is that I'm a mum as well. Mm. And in terms of being a mum, I'm meant to be a grown-up. 
And I am a grown-up. I'm a very, you know, I don't really drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. You know, I'm actually quite boring in that regard. But I'm like, oh, there's another level now that I have to get to. Mm. And then what's my look going to be there? Is it going to be Lorna Jane? Is it going to be blazers? Mm. I don't know. Am I going to get into linen? Well, linen is very comfortable in the hot weather. It really is, and I tried it for a while. But as a curvy person, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you're just like, mm, "That's not that's not my look. That's yeah. that's not it. That's not it. I've got to find it." When I was in my late, like nineteen, I think probably the period nineteen to twenty three, I felt very flummoxed by what a young woman, because obviously by then I was no longer a teenager, but I was a young woman. But like like Helena Bonham Carter. Obviously. Uh, I mean, like it's almost <laughs> like looking in a mirror of her looking at you. Like Helena Bonham Carter, I feel like I developed quite late in terms of maturity and in terms of, I mean, I was really scared of so many things. And I sort of, I guess in terms of like trying on what I thought it would look like to look like a young woman, particularly one who, as you and I both experienced, was never the thin one, was never the pretty one, was never the one that I didn't have what people would consider a typical high school experience of, you know, boyfriends or girlfriends or like dating or whatever. Like that just didn't happen for me at all. So when I was in my early 20s, I thought, well, an adult woman looks like someone who wears like corporate Oh, really? Because I went fishnet stockings. No, 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 not me. So I've got photographs of me at, you know, like family, big family events and family reunions at, you know, 21, 22 years old. I think there's one even when I'm 19. And I'm wearing sort of like these kind of long suit, I think they were from Suzanne maybe, pantsuits that like 45-year-old women at the time would have worn Mm. to their office job. I mean, you were just a thirst trap, weren't you? Well, that just yeah. Sounds... But I, and I thought I remember wearing it. And I actually did feel pretty good in them because I remember thinking I look really sophisticated and really grown up. And now that I am actually a thirty-nine-year-old who, <laughs> for whom those clothes would be age appropriate, I have <laughs> little to zero interest in them. So, in, in that in that sense, it, it's been fun having like a latent adolescence in terms of exploring your physicality and exploring the way that you look and what you do with your hair and just the confidence that comes, I think, from being forged as a young woman in a way where you never felt like you fit in. So at some point your confidence catches up with that and you are just like, well, fuck it, I'll just do whatever I want. Yeah, because I don't think it happens in the – it doesn't sync up. I think life is always out of sync. Yeah. That's probably the way to address it is that we're just never quite – yeah, like the idea of buying a bra for enjoyment and not functionality, <laughs> things like that. that you well, kind I have of go, much smaller tits than you. So you do. <laughs> you do. It's and, easier for uh, me. So it's much easier for you and probably slightly you can go like sales. I remember once taking my partner to buy it because I needed to buy a bra and, um, and I was just like, grab all the E-cups, <laughs> Gs and Hs. If you see a K out there, just grab it. Just grab it. But there are more. there are more options now for sexy, fun bras in large sizes because women have started businesses. I know, but also it is one of the upshots of social media. I'm like, it's amazing. If I had had that as a teenager, being able to see like curvy, olive-skinned girls with, you know, that suffered from maybe an upper hair lip, hair on my upper lip kind of thing and stuff like that, I never saw those images growing up. So now I see that and kind of go, oh, it's so much fun. Like if I'd seen that 
would I have been different? Would mm. I have tried different things? Would I would I have had a bit more confidence and a bit more play? And you know, maybe I could have worn that sports girl branded t shirt. Like you still can. I know they. I still can. They sell them and now and they've brought them back. They've brought them back. <laughs> Everything old is new again. I know. I just feel like that might just be clutching at a past that I need to let go. <laughs> so I, I kind of look at that and think, oh, that's really cool. And all the different shapes and sizes and all that kind of stuff. I think that to me is like something that I wish I'd had mm. growing up. And I think that, but you, you never know. I say, I, I hope that that would have given me this confidence or anything like that as I got older and everything and maybe not contributed as much to the imposter syndrome that I feel that I do have and stuff like that. But it's all hypothetical because mm. I don't know if that would have been the case at all. So. Well, we can sit here and ask questions about our identities and our adolescence for hours, and we will. <laughs> but for now, shall we get to other people's questions? Yes, 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 let's do that. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Lou are doctors, counsellors, or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two humans who've got a little thing called life experience and who both deserve compensation for some of the men that we've dated. <laughs> My wrist and heart hurts, says, I've recently had a baby and have now got a form of tenosynovitis known as mum wrist. Basically, my wrist is a bit fucked due to repetitive strain when looking after a new baby. I wonder why it's not known as dad wrist. When researching, one doctor said that it was becoming more common due to how women now live more quote unquote sedentary lifestyles because they don't bake bread or scrub the floor as much. What the fuck? My school friend was misdiagnosed with an hysterical mental breakdown when she actually had encephalitis and now has permanent damage after it took months to be discovered as she was in a psychiatric hospital. All it would have taken was a simple blood test. A family friend died after her cancer symptoms were brushed off by a male GP for months as bad periods. Her youngest son doesn't remember her. Medical textbooks only showing skin conditions on white skin, cis politicians debating the healthcare choices of trans people, the HPV vaccine only being given to girls for years in the UK because that would make herd immunity. I guess gay men don't exist or matter. People being recommended to take a break when on the pill to simulate a period, just to attempt to appease the Pope. My question is, how do we navigate a healthcare system that so successfully integrates into the fucked up world we live in? What can we do to change it? Love, my wrist, heart hurts. Lou, what are your thoughts? That's intense. Like I'm like, yeah, cool. That also brought up some stuff that I hadn't really thought of in terms of I do think that women, I can speak from me just as a woman, we are encouraged to minimise how we feel generally speaking and I think that does extend to health conditions as well. I think you need a new doctor if they told you to go and bake. I've got a really good one. (laughs) (laughs) So hit up Clem. I would just be like, yeah, that you don't know me. You clearly have no experience with me. So fuck off. But I spoke to Clem. I had two miscarriages during lockdown and one of them I had at home and I was in a lot of, lot of pain. And I was on the phone to the doctor because they were trying to figure out if I had to go into hospital and everything. And they were asking me on the scale of one to 10 how much pain I had. And even in that moment, I still felt the pressure as a woman to be like, oh, is this, is this what we're meant to go through? Is this how it's, if this is how it's meant to feel, then maybe it's a I six. don't want to complain. But I just, yeah, and I just wanted to scream 12 or like 20 or 25 because mm. that's how I really felt. 
And in answering kind of your question, it is that thing of like it is such a hard obstacle to kind of get around, even if someone like me who's got like all the privileges and articulation to say this is how I feel and I still don't do it, then mm-hmm. how does it, how do we help other people and how do you navigate that system? That's really kind of problematic. And I think it's always about advocacy and trying to find medical practitioners who are kind of on your side. Mm. What I'm trying to say is that I don't think it's something that is fixed overnight and I think it obviously, like I watch men, adult white men, talking about women's health issues and I get so upset because I think why these two politicians debating it as part of their platforms, where are the people that actually I can relate to and would have any idea about this whatsoever? Why are these people still making decisions about us? Why are we still voting these people in? Mm. why are these our only choices? And so it becomes much more about, I think, advocacy and activism at a much more kind of grassroots level but also finding those people that can go right to the top that can make those changes mm. as well because it's all well and good that we we try and talk about it amongst ourselves but it is about finding mental health practitioners and mental health advocates and, and medical professionals who have the ear of the people that mm. that are in charge currently. And the problem is that the whole system, it's designed to fit within and reflect a much larger system of white supremacy and patriarchy and ableism and transphobia and homophobia and classism. The whole system is designed to exclude the people who really need diverse healthcare the most and who suffer the most from not having access to healthcare. And then they're given pills and that, and then that brings in the whole idea that it's, you know, it's for profit. Uh, You know, it's easier to give someone a pill than actually deal with their problem. One of the reasons, or one of the, the biggest threats to women's lives in Australia is heart disease and heart attacks. And this is one of the leading causes of death for women is a heart attack. One of the reasons why heart disease is such a problem and why heart attacks affect women so deeply is because we don't actually know what the symptoms of heart attacks in women are because they present differently to, and look, I'm using very cis-normative definitions here. Let's just assume that the healthcare system is treating, has framed this in terms of cis women and, and cis men. Cis women have different presentation of heart attack symptoms as cis men. So the pop cultural representation that we've always seen of a heart attack is, it's a, the you know, it's the sore left them. arm, sore left arm, you know, you clutch your left arm and then you collapse. And so people look for those symptoms, but actually in cis women, heart attacks present as pain in the jaw and pain in the back. So oftentimes women will be dismissed by, oh, well, it's just stress or you've just pulled your back out or whatever it might be. So these symptoms go undiagnosed. It then increases women's likelihood of suffering heart attacks. And one of the reasons why we don't have that representation of different symptoms in pop culture is because if TV shows were to reflect how a cis woman had a heart attack, it would require paramedics to undo her top and undo her bra, which means that you'd have boobs on cable TV. Or, or boobs on network channel TV. On, on network free to air. Free to air, free to air. So really this is where streamers need to be picking up the slack. And also any kind of medical testing is not done on anyone who has a period. 
they claim, well, it will interfere with, it's a contraindication of the efficacy of the drugs. So there's a lot of medication that is only designed, that is prescribed to women, but that's really been researched and designed for men. Yeah, absolutely. I think going back to the heart attack thing, I think I, I thought I was having a heart attack this year, you know, looked up the symptoms. and oh, no, I'm being serious. Like I actually thought of oh, something's not right. And then went to my doc, had a video conference thing because, you know, you couldn't go and see anyone. And, um, and she was like, no, it's not. Obviously I'm talking about symptoms that weren't the symptoms that women get, mm. right? So my entire point of reference was what I see on telly and stuff like that. And so I was like, oh, okay. But I still went in and saw her again like a few weeks later, still concerned mm. that it could be something serious. And I think it's like a, it's a ribcage referral thing and also how I sit and there's a whole bunch of things we don't need to get into now. But it was because in my mind it was the pain in the arm and, and all of those things and the chest chest mm. pain that I thought, well, I'm obviously having a heart attack and everyone's ignoring me. Mm. But I didn't know mm. that the symptoms are different for women. You know, I, no I had does. no idea. And so maybe it's my responsibility as a storyteller to have more women having heart attacks um, <laughs> yeah, just in, my, in, my, in my material. But these are the things that, you know, one of the biggest insults about it is that they're so often dismissed as, well, you know, it's catering to the base level of acceptable human, which is white cis man, and everyone else outside of that is other and niche. It goes back exactly to what you said at the start of the show, at the start of the episode, when you were saying that you, you know, once upon a time were writing about problematic women who were not necessarily likable, who were complex, etc. And the response, as we know, to stories like that is, oh, well, who wants to watch that? Well, actually, the, the actual response was, why would a 50-year-old man watch that? Yeah, well, that there was you go. actually the quote. There um, you go. And I was like, oh, well, and you had to go, oh, okay, yeah, cool. I did. And I, my, my response was, oh, I didn't think about them. <laughs> it didn't How even, dare it, you? It didn't even occur to me. Like, I, I, I just didn't care if they watched it or not. You know, I met a woman a few years ago at the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation, does a, a big drive every October and they have a, you know, they have a dinner at the end of it and I met a young woman at this fundraiser. She was by that stage, I think, around 26, 27, she developed ovarian cancer when she was 16, which is very unusual. Very it's very young. unusual to get it that young. But it went undiagnosed basically. She's lucky to be alive because it went undiagnosed for a couple of years because every time she went to the doctor to complain about these horrifically painful periods, not only did they just try and prescribe the pill to her, but they also framed it, what a fucking surprise, as she was just overreacting, she was being hysterical, specifically as well because she was a teenage girl and we know that we all know that teenage girls completely overreact about everything, which it then it does not surprise me that you then say that suffering, you know, the extreme pain of a miscarriage earlier this year, that you're thinking, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, my pain is 12, but maybe I'm just a bloody weak woman who can't handle it. Well, they are, you know. We know that, like, men are the ones that can't fucking handle pain. Yes, yeah, they can't. And and I think that that's the thing is that I was still going. And I, like, I pride myself on, I, you know, I think I'm pretty relatively well-educated and know things and stuff, but there still was not a lot of info. I was told I was going to, it was going to be like a heavy period. And I was saying to claim earlier, it was nothing like that whatsoever. I gave birth. Mm -hmm. And that is just like the mental health ramifications of what that could be if that had been an issue afterwards and stuff like that, like how you're not prepped for that being a possibility 
And then the, the lack of aftercare as well shows you just how much the system is not geared towards dealing with things that specifically affect people outside of what the, you know, I used to say it's like this comedy and then there's women's comedy and there's, you know, yeah. everyone else's comedy. But comedy as a set was always described as men. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I we think don't even medical, need to say the men. The sorry, men I know. Just I just, I, I've got to just apologise for myself there. Um, and then I think it's the same with a lot of these things and I think it's the same with, with medical health and, and going through that myself, you know, having a kid and then the stuff that I went through this year, it just keeps reconfirming that mm. for me. Reading the question, hearing the question read out, I'm like, I have no answer for this. I don't you know, really like, have I an answer for I don't have either. an answer for this. And I'm like, but that doesn't mean that that's something that shouldn't be answered and addressed. Yeah. In fact, it's like how do we get it answered? How do we get that that question mm. addressed? Mm. You know, because it's not going to be solved by you and I sitting here having a chat about it. No, and I don't I don't always have answers for everything, but the questions are still worth asking. Oh, absolutely, because it gets me kind of going, well, how do how does that change? You know, but I do think that it has to be about getting people at the top, the influential people to be the people advocating and making those changes and it's about getting access to those people. And electing more women. I think that's just part of it, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's that thing where you're just like going, uh, every election I'm just like, are we just tired of watching the same men argue about our issues and issues that affect us? Well, I can definitely agree with that. I'm tired of men in general. So I know, I read your um, Instagram <laughs> feed. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have no real answer for you, little sister, but definitely appreciate the conversation and uh, and hopefully other people will go on and, and share some of those stats and share some of the things that we've talked about today with other people to just, I guess, increase awareness. But yes, in short, the medical system is fucked and designed for white people, for men and for cis people and for everyone else can basically, according to the system, get fucked. But please don't move to Byron Bay and follow Pete Evans's work. Like, that's not the answer. Do not do that. Pete Evans is never the answer. Queer and Confused writes, I'm hoping you can help me. My best friend has fallen in love with me. We are both queer women in our mid to late 20s who recently just dumped their male partners. She left her husband as she has come out as a lesbian. I am more of a baby queer and left my boyfriend as I had become his psychologist. The experience of refusing to settle and being unapologetically ourselves has definitely brought us closer. She's definitely my platonic soulmate, but last weekend we were away with our friends and she kissed me and confessed her feelings. I explained gently that I'm more comfortable being friends as I don't want to complicate matters or lose her as a friend. She was very understanding and pledged for us to try and get back to some level of normalcy. However, when we are alone together, there is obvious sexual tension coming from her. Our kiss had chemistry for me too, although I'm not interested in sleeping together. I'm not sure what to do next or how to navigate this playing field, and I'm hoping you can help me. Regards. Loose hands. Oh, gosh. Have yeah. you ever fallen in love with a friend or vice versa? Yeah, I've developed feelings for people who haven't had feelings for me. You know, I think we've all done that over time. I've only done that. <laughs> I've only done that. I'm exclusively. It's my it's my thing. Yeah, it's my fetish. It's my thing. I'm really into it. Mm. Um, I have, but I've never gone as far as to like play on them, you know, or, or you know, act on them, confess, <laughs> confess to it. It's always God, been nightmare. It's always been from a distance behind a fence. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um, but no, I have had I have had friends 
definitely there's been a tension there. But I've got an awful track record of then sleeping with them as well. So I love how restrained you are at being like, well, our kiss had chemistry, (laughs) you know, whereas I'd be like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure this is a bad idea, but our kiss had chemistry. (laughs) Let's just go into this, shall we? Look, I think if your friend is, I think it's not going to be overnight. Like she's addressed the fact that she has said, okay, let's try and get this back to a point of normalcy. And that's more on her part, I think. But now that you're aware of it, it's kind of there. Mm. And so you're alone with her and you see this kind of sexual tension, but what you're not seeing is her processing that and trying to return it to this kind of normalness Mm. and that. And sometimes you need a bit of a timeout, I think, actually, because it is emotional. And once it's kind of out there, it's out there. And I know from experience it gives way to bigger conversations. So suddenly now because you've admitted it and the two of you are aware of it, you'll talk about it more maybe um, it will become something bigger it might evolve into you getting involved with her and stuff like that. So if these are things that you don't want, mm. maybe it is best just to kind of take a bit of a a controlled break, you know, just until that kind of tension goes away. It's not going to happen overnight. No, it will happen. But I agree completely. I think that's really, really good advice, especially the part about her, the sexual tension really being a symptom of her processing. And also, you know, the desire is still there. We've all had unrequited crushes on people and we've all probably had unrequited crushes on friends where in our minds we hear what they're saying to us. I'm, you know, I I love you, but I'm not interested in pursuing the relationship in that way. But our emotions and ourselves, our inner selves are saying to us, but why? We get on so well. Well, Oh my God. If you can't be with your best friend, then who can you really be with? I mean, the thing is, you know, I have been in a situation where I did initiate something with someone who I wasn't really close friends with, but I really liked her a lot. I thought we weren't going to talk about this, but obviously now <laughs> you're going to learn. You're going to learn out. Brought you here. Our origin um, story. Here it no, goes. This, this is in the last eighteen months. So this person that I became, I was new friends with, and was very drawn to. I was kind of like a bad person in this situation, I think, although not intentionally. So, I was extremely attracted to her. I initiated contact. Um, no, we went on a date. We went on a date. We had like a lovely make out. And then I guess I was also sort of navigating newly single motherhood. Yeah. And I kind of got like cold feet, I suppose. But also I was, I sensed, I think, that there was a great amount of feeling from her, not necessarily like, oh my God, she's so in love with me. It wasn't that. And I, and we're actually wonderful friends now. She's one of my best friends. I sensed that the feeling that she had was probably, or or rather I was going into the situation wanting to kind of like play the field generally in my life. And I thought this is going to end badly. I'm going to hurt this person. And so I'm going to pull back and explain that I don't feel that same way and, you know, apologize as best as I could. And it did require some adjustment because she did have feelings and she told me that she had feelings and she very valiantly didn't really kind of push those feelings or anything. There was no sort of like, it wasn't like the friendship then became this thing that she was doing to try to get to something else. Yeah, it wasn't the cipher for like. No. I think think people get confused. You get an emotional intimacy, which sounds like what's going on Mm. with this situation because obviously they're in kind of a particular, you know, they're both left partners 
they're both kind of one's come out as a lesbian, one's you know baby queer as, as as they described, and you're spending a lot of time together. You're really understanding each other. You're empowering each other. You know, I think we sometimes underestimate the the intensity and um, the emotional love of friendships, mm. and sometimes they are like relationships, though. Sometimes they'll crash yeah. and burn, though, as yeah. well. You know, but it's hard to know how to express that intimacy. Because the only model that we have for that intensity of platonic intimacy and that sense that, like, we are soulmates, the only model we have is, like, well, we have to have sex. Or buy a cat. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that actually you've done the right thing in explaining to her that, you know, gently explaining that you, you're more comfortable with being friends, you've been really honest, you're not leading her on, you're not dangling the possibility of a relationship with you over her head. And she understands, regardless of how much sexual tension you might be sensing there, she understands that this is how you feel, even if she doesn't like it. But she will, if the relationship and if the friendship is strong, it will be able to survive this. But as Lou said, you may just need to take a controlled time out. I think that's actually a really good suggestion. Because, and here's my other tip, is that right now is like the volatile time so you don't drink around yes. each other. Do not get drunk around each other because this is the time that it will happen. You'll either this sleep is- with each other or have a fight where you never talk to each other again. Yeah, or you'll wake up in a park somewhere and you won't know how you got there and then you'll go home and you'll sleep together. <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, I'm just saying it's it's a dangerous thing. So don't add any of those things into your relationship. Just drink a lot of herbal tea, you know, go to a museum. And I think maintaining that honesty as well and, you know, no one wants to be told repeatedly I'm not interested. So also don't go into the, any situation with her where she can, if she senses that you're on your guard around her or that you're trying to, like, manage her feelings, I mean, if that were me, that would really upset me. Yeah. I hate I hate feeling like someone is managing my feelings. She's a grown-up. You've told her how you feel. She should be able to pass that for herself and to sit with it. And, yeah, you might have some, some She needs to go and sleep moments, with someone else right now. Yeah, like she, she does. does. She needs to go and sleep with someone else right now. You know, like kind of just diffuse it, put it in another. That That's that's my and the great thing is, advice. You may always be in love with each other in some way, but you more platonically perhaps than she is with you. But I actually think that the longevity of your relationship seems like it's pretty sound and you will get to a point where you are able to actually even have a conversation about this and and talk about what this situation was like. I mean, everyone's situation is different, but that's been my experience with the scenario I was describing. Yes, and um, I'm glad you guys worked it out. I am too because we are really wonderful friends now and I'm so glad that I didn't fuck it up by rushing into anything more physically intimate and then getting cold feet and deciding I never wanted to see her again because that is a terrible thing that I do. Well, you'd be able to answer a different question then. Yeah, I would be. (laughs) Good luck, little sister. Emotional Conquistador asks, could you please revisit the Emotional Conquistador you mentioned a few weeks ago? I related to this so much but didn't realise how unacceptable it is for men to do this. But it's so common with online dating. I've recently been through so much. Being led on by these men, eventually trusting them and confiding in them about my past trauma and mental health, only to be suddenly ghosted or treated so badly that I leave is just crushing. 
It makes me feel like because of my mental health, I'm not worthy of love. I'm feeling really confused. I thought I was a good judge of character, but these guys are so convincing. I don't want to keep going through this, but I'm tired and alone and I want a partner to share the ups and downs and complexities of adulthood with. So before I throw to you, Lou, I'm just going to give a little backstory for listeners who aren't familiar with the term emotional conquistador. I've mentioned it in quite a few episodes. It was based on an article that Tracy Egan Morrissey wrote for Jezebel back in like 2007, 2008, uh, which I still think is so relevant today, even though that was in the pre-internet era, basically. So basically the emotional conquistador The argument that Tracy makes is that the sexual revolution made it possible for women to go out and have as much sex as they wanted. I mean, yes, of course, we're still slut-shamed for it, but it's no longer a conquest to get a woman to sleep with you because we will quite happily pursue our own sexual desire ourselves. So the new conquest, the new way to break a woman is to emotionally conquer her, get her to the point where she opens up to you where she's willing to take that next step into an emotional realm that perhaps before she had walls up around because you're because the guys there are acting like you know I can, you can trust me I've never felt this way about anyone before let me tell you all about my family we can do things together I'm just imagining a future with you blah 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 and then finally you're like cool I am really open to this I'm really ready for this and all of a sudden they're like wow I'm just, I'm so sorry to do this to you, but I just feel like things are moving too fast and I just really need to take a step back and uh, it's not you, it's me, et cetera, et cetera. Which leaves, of course, you feeling not only completely bereft, but also incredibly gaslit because you've been made to believe that you were opening up to each other, this emotional relationship was developing between the two of you only to give them what they want, which is control over your emotional sphere and have them turn around and say, fuck you. Because you're emotionally invested. Yes. That's the thing. And then it ends up occupying far more of your time than it should. Hi, I'm Lou and I'm a chronic dater of emotional <laughs> conquistadors. I felt that was very pointed. I was like, my email got through. Yeah. Um, I've never been upset about someone sleeping with me and then not coming back, you know, whatever. Like, it's the emotional development. It's when you know you can see that they've done it to you. Oh, yeah. Like I've gone through things where um, a guy could get a plane, a sky riding plane, and write in the sky, I love you, Lou. And if I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing, he would be like, oh, I don't want you to get the wrong <laughs> idea. Like when I got somebody to do that, it wasn't because I was like loving you. Like, you know, it was just because like, it was like cheaper to write that than. I just have to, um, I just have to tell people about the speech that I gave at your wedding to your husband. (laughs) And it's not, it wasn't my joke. I was just repeating your joke as well. But you know, you and John had been together for seven years when you got married. And I remember early on, you used to make this joke that you'd get to your wedding day with him and you'd say, God, I can't believe that we're getting married. I can't believe we're going to spend the rest of our life together. And your husband would turn to you and say, oh, oh God. God. Oh. Sorry, do you think that this means that I like, I like you? you? I mean, like, oh, Ooh. actually I it's brought you here today. John calls it the long game, <laughs> you know. But, like, we, laugh, we can laugh about it now. But, I mean, like, I was just ripped through people that would do that to me. They would go to great lengths to try and go out with me. They would talk to me for hours on end. I think that's actually that's probably a symptom of the emotional right? Oh, totally. is that? It's putting in the time. And then they would just turn they would the ghost was the big one. And that and it's really hard. It just is because you think it's you. It's absolutely mm-hmm. you because it's geared that way. Mm-hmm. It's intentional to make it feel like it's you. And so not only do they get 
your emotional input when they are talking to you and giving you the time of day, they're now also getting it when they're not. Oh, yeah, when, when they're long gone. Their you're money's still devoting, working for them now. They're not they working living, for their money anymore. Yeah, they're living rent-free in your head. They've <laughs> yeah, like put the down, They put the down payment on your brain space while they were actually seeing you. And then they left and they just let the investment roll in. Yeah, so much so that I nearly broke up with my partner on numerous occasions and got talked down off that wall by, I think, yourself and, and a few other people around me that were like, what are you doing? It's like John is one of the few <laughs> men in the world that I like. And I was like, I was like, I don't know, I'm just waiting for it to come. I'm waiting for the, the other shoe to drop. And But what was different and what I'll address in, in this is that it isn't you, and I know it's really easy for us to say it isn't you, but it isn't you because they're weaponizing mm. it's emotion. A game. It's a, then you've also got to deal with the fact that it's a game and they chose to play it with you and then you're like, mm. oh, my God, what does that mean about me? Mm-hmm. It's like, like being at a nightclub when you're there and the really creepy guy comes up to you and tries to hit on you. You know what happens in my head? I used to be like, oh, my God, that guy looked around this whole nightclub <laughs> <laughs> and went, there's the girl I can get. <laughs> That's how my head would play that scenario out. So I think, but when I met my now partner, I was very kind of upfront about what I wanted emotionally, like really upfront about it. My defences, I found my defences come back up, but he was actually kind of like, oh, okay, cool, all right. Well, this is what I want. And then we would just have these big conversations about that and whether or not we could actually provide that to each other. So there was something shifted. I started to trust a bit mm. more. And the longer it went on, I was able to do that. But that said, like I dated people for nearly a year who then took me away on a romantic weekend and then broke up with me in an airport coffee lounge because that's what they'd planned to do the whole time. Mm. So I'm not saying that it does stuff up how you read people. It does make you think that you're not a good judge of character. It does all of those things whatsoever. But it's not about you. But it's got nothing to do with you. It's just so much got nothing to do with you. And when and I know that you want to be with somebody and you want to share the ups and downs and that, but you want to make sure that you can share the ups and downs with the right person mm. and also that they've got the rigour and that they've got the character that you need. It's not about you being a bad judge of character. They've got to be the right character and they've got to bring that to you. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, is. It, it makes me so upset because I wasted so much time and it gave me a lot of material and fuel yeah. for my creative life, absolutely, but... It is tricky when they're so good. They're so at, good. At, yeah, and this is the other thing to remember, it, not just that it's not you, but also that they're so fucking good at it. They're so good at it. Like when Tracy Egan Morrissey wrote that article, she had a reputation for, you know, she used to write about sex all the time. She presented herself to the world as someone who was very difficult to get behind those emotional war- mm. walls, which then becomes a challenge to the person that wants to pull the old emotional conquistador thing on you. This is the other thing. I feel like you are more, it's a weird compliment, but take yeah. it as a compliment. You are more at risk of being emotionally conquistador if these fuck faces who are doing it look at you and they they think that is a, that's yeah. a challenge, that's a strong woman, I'm going to break her. Because it is about that. At, at, at its Absolutely. heart, it is about making sure that you are broken and that you are not this strong, unaccessible woman that you present to be. Yeah. And it takes time to kind of, I keep saying this, you know, that things need time and you need to adjust and you need all of that, but you really do. And, and that they're ultimately very threatened by strong women who it seems can easily live without them. So they insert themselves into these women's lives 
in a way that makes it feel like you can live without me, but wouldn't it be nice to go through life with me, supporting you and championing you by your side to the point where those strong women then go, you know what, actually, maybe that would be nice. And I'm going to let you in behind behind the tough exterior and I'm going to show you my soft underbelly. And the moment you do that. Oh, I mean, like they couldn't be out of there there fast enough. Like it's almost like, you know, they don't want to give themselves away. That's the notch on the bedpost. It is. That, that's that, and I'm sure they're just wanking off somewhere into a sock somewhere over the thought of it. You mm. know, that's their that's their release. It's what they enjoy doing, and they do target certain types of women, and they want them. And often they'll present as the most vulnerable man and the most sensitive man, and mm. oh, the all the rest boys, of it. Yeah. And now, like, I just started wide birthing them. Like, just was like, nah. I feel like, yeah, <laughs> maybe this is unfair. <laughs> maybe maybe it does, they're ruining actually nice men I know. for people. But I feel like now those are just major red flags for me. Oh, you know? I mean, like I've got my list and I'm just like, yep, yeah, no, nope, that is just. At, at least straight up fucking cunts, you know. You get the measure of them pretty fast, cunts, you know? don't like, you? Yeah. At least they're honest about it. That's exactly it. I was like, you just want somebody to be like, I just, I'm really into you because I'm sexually attracted to you. <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm really into the ideas that are sitting between those ears of yeah. yours. I tend to just go like, no, I just don't trust you anymore. That Well, that's why I tend to avoid men who make a big show and dance about being feminists. Yes. Anyone that wears an I'm a feminist badge, I tend to just go, oh, you're... Anyone who feels like they've studied, not just me, but studied the kind of person that I might appear to be to people, anyone who feels like they've studied me and they're providing a list of responses that they think I'll like, no, 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 thank you. No, thank you. I would rather date someone who has never even explored the concept of feminism, but is open to talking about it and will ask questions. But the way you're talking now is like how where our caller has to kind of get to, Mm. which is this is what I want. Yes. This is what I need and can I find somebody who can give me what I need and also can I give them what they mm. need as well because it, you are looking for a partnership and, and it has to be, you know, partnerships are not always equal. They're not even equal at the start. They oscillate throughout the yep. time that you spend Give together. Absolutely. And there might be times where, you know, if you've got mental health issues that you you need that support for that reason and, and they might have mental health issues and you need to support them for that as well. Mm-hmm. So I think having those kind of like really clarifying conversations, I think, I think you'll get the measure of them a lot faster. Mm. Just before we wrap that question up, I just want to touch on something that you said in it, which is uh, it makes me feel like because of my mental health, I'm not worthy of love. Mm-hmm. You are absolutely worthy of love. Do not let these fucking shit stains make you feel in any way like because they've exploited your vulnerability and they've exploited your willingness to open up and be honest with them, that you are not worthy of love or that you are foolish in some way. Because actually it's an act of bravery to be repeatedly exposed to this behaviour and to decide to continue to try. Oh, absolutely. Like, I just think it's amazing that we still get up in the morning. Yeah. You know, and want to do it. So I think, yeah, and and bad on them for yeah. stigmatising whatever it is that you were going through and weaponizing that and saying that might, you know, and I assume from the email and I could be wrong that they somehow that contributed to them having to to disappear and ghost and everything like that. Just Just shame on them. Yeah, fuck them. You're so much better than that. Fuck anyone who does that. You're worthy of love. 
you are definitely worth more than those dickheads. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like you and I said at the start, you don't just wake up and figure that out overnight. You have to practice reminding yourself of that every day. Just practice it. Read that article again. Remind yourself that it's not you. In that case, it really is true. And don't be it's in such a you, rush. We set yeah. these arbitrary kind of like date goals and age goals and things like that. Like we just should get rid of all of that stuff entirely and just be like, when I do it, I do it. I mean, honestly, I just think that people should stop dating men, but that's me. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. If you have a question, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. If you'd like to support the ongoing making of this podcast, you can find me on Patreon under the username Clementine Ford. My guest this week has been Lou Sands, writer, performer, and woman I'm proud to call friends. Call friend. <laughs> friend. Any final words, Lou? Oh, no, this has just been great. That's what I want to say. And I just realised how unqualified I am to offer advice. No, don't be silly. You're a qualified, you know, 40-year-old woman with a bunch of life experience. You're definitely qualified to be someone's and big thank sister. thank you for calling me 40. I'm 41. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. I thought you were 40. You were eternally 40 to me. Thank you. No, um, it's, been, it's been good. But, yeah, it's given me food for thought as well. But, yeah, all I can just say is that it's just time. Everything just takes time. And practice. And practice. And what feels really, really big and immediate at one part of your life will not always feel that big and immediate. I, I have a five-year rule. I always think to myself, will this be an issue in five years from now? And I think, oh, no, I won't. I would yeah. have figured out a way to pay my rent. I yeah. would have figured out a way to do that. And so that's my little bit that I'll sign off with. It doesn't always work because sometimes you're like, this problem could be bigger and I could be in jail. <laughs> but <laughs> especially when you're dealing with tax. But, yeah. Oh, God, tax. <laughs> well, I am so grateful that you came onto the Big Sister Hotline today. It's wonderful to see you always. It's wonderful to see your career finally being um, made more visible to everyone the hard work that I've seen you put in over the years that I've known you I'm really really excited for your success it's good for this to be the final time we talk together (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna dump me now you're too too big for me now Um, I celebrate you I champion you and I'm very glad that you're in the world that's sweet remember there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the big sister hotline we're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist especially now that it has to be over zoom so contact us instead the big sister hotline The phone lines are open. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.